morning. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you would receive what we have just sung as the prayer of our hearts, that as we open the word this morning and consider the broad message of the scripture that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, you would reveal your glory to us in him, you'd help us to see him as central not only to your word but to all of life to our individual lives and we would be moved to greater affection for him, greater faithfulness to you and zeal for your gospel. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This morning, this is going to be a more of a doctrinal message to prepare us for our next sermon series, which will be on a a book of the Old Testament. This message is designed to prepare us for that. This passage in Luke 24 will be something of a jumping off point for that. So as you're finding your place in Luke 24, if you would stand with me, we're going to read verses 13 through 27. Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. Just a little bit of context, this takes place just after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, just after his resurrection. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. On that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, they did not, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You may be seated. Remarkable. Remarkable. They're walking with Jesus. 
They have heard that he has been raised from the dead. And they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, I've heard many times over the years from people in, in this church and, and elsewhere, even, even brothers that I, with, that I studied with in seminary, people saying, I just don't know what to do with the Old Testament. And it's not that folks don't know how, or I'm sorry, it's not that they don't know that we, we are intended to read the Old Testament in light of Christ, but rather they don't know how. And we might say that that's true of, of these two men on the road to Emmaus. They clearly expected a Savior to come and to redeem Israel, but it is as if they saw the promises of God through frosted glass. See, Jesus being unrecognizable to them on that road to Emmaus was something of a metaphor for how they understood the Old Testament. So obscured was their view that they could not see the fulfillment of God's promises when he's standing right in front of them. As I've already mentioned, next week we'll begin our new sermon series, which will be an Old Testament book. When we study the Old Testament, it can be tempting to default to a Christless reading, to, to miss the true significance of that book, to understand it to be just about the people that we're reading about or to be about the people who, who wrote that particular book. Likewise, as we live our everyday lives, it can be tempting to default to a Christless understanding of, of all things, to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, to miss the true significance of our lives, which is Christ, in a sense, to be walking along the road with Jesus right next to us and not recognize the significance of that. Jesus not only helps us to understand the Old Testament, but he gives us spiritual life. He is the purpose for our very existence. And for that reason, he brings clarity to all things. When we look at any aspect of reality outside of the preeminent interpretive key, which is Christ, then truth and meaning will remain obscured to us, not just in the Old Testament, but in all of life. This morning, we're going to look at several promises of God, which run like I-beams through the Old Testament, undergirding every promise, every passage of law, every passage of history, poetry, and prophecy. And these, these promises... They not only give unifying shape to the Old Testament, but they speak to our deepest needs as fallen human beings, and they point to Jesus as their fulfillment. And when we keep these promises in mind, with Christ as their fulfillment, the Old Testament becomes understandable, and more importantly, all of life becomes understandable. Again, we're doing this to provide appropriate context for that upcoming sermon series and appropriate context for all of life. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. Jesus is the uniting figure of salvation history. He is the key to understanding the whole Bible. He's the key to understanding our own lives. So, the three promises this morning, three I-beams and, and how they are fulfilled in Christ. The first of those is that God promised freedom from enemies. God promised freedom from 
enemies. There are enemies that plague us. This is true in the Old Testament, of course, but it's true in all of life. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 now, if you will, please. Genesis 3. Who are these enemies that plague us? First of all, there's sin. In Genesis 3, Adam ate the forbidden fruit, and when he did, sin entered the world. Sin, rightly understood, is not just rebellious acts against God, but it is more importantly the condition of the heart that gives rise to those rebellious acts. Adam and all descended from him have hearts that are bent against God in sin. We're all conceived with this sinful condition, and it is more dangerous than any enemy that we can see with our eyes. That enemy, sin, leads to a second enemy, which is death. So we have sin, there is also death. God had warned Adam, in Genesis 2, in the day that you eat of that particular fruit, the fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Adam did not immediately die physically, but he did immediately die spiritually. That is, his heart was turned against God. Spiritual death would eventually culminate in his physical death. Romans 5.12 tells us that that became a consequence for all who who followed Adam. Sin entered the world through Adam and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all sinned. And death rightly understood is separation from God under the wrath of God. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is full of misery. Do you know why that is? It's because God designed us to flourish only in fellowship with Him. And that's why sin and death is a problem. Sin leads to death, and death is separation from God. That's why we cannot flourish. That's why why misery is everywhere that we look in this world. It's because we're separated from God. That great enemy is working us over all the time. Death. There's a third enemy, the devil. When Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent's temptation... In a sense, they threw their hat in with him. But look at what God pronounced as part of God's judgment on the serpent, beginning in verse 14, Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Even though the man and the woman, in a sense, chose the serpent over God, God put enmity between the devil and the woman and between the offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. And eventually, a singular offspring of the woman would be triumphant over the devil. Someone descended from Eve would eventually destroy the devil. Genesis 3.15 is God's first promise that he would free his people from their enemies. And so throughout Scripture, the enemies of God, we find them attempting to throw roadblocks to prevent God's promise from being fulfilled so as to prevent their own demise. We, We see this over and over. The devil resorts to all kinds of means. He uses sinful men and false worship, failed leaders and unfaithfulness in the hearts of God's own people to stop God from bringing that one seed, the final seed of the woman. And he wants to do that because he does not want to be defeated. We see that over and over. 
the Old Testament. Roadblock blocks being thrown in God's way to prevent that promise from being fulfilled. If we study the Old Testament without this promise in mind, we'll be tempted to see only the surface level things happening, only the surface level works of these enemies. We'll see only the human oppressors. We'll see only the idolatry. And like the Jews themselves, will misunderstand the real problem. Similarly, when we look at our lives outside of this promise, we'll think our real problem is just the things that we can see, which is things like, well, I have this health issue, I have these money problems, or I have relationship difficulties. We forget that our root issue is sin. And when we convince ourselves that we don't have this root issue, but we just have these surface level things, then it's easy to convince ourselves we can fix our problems. We can fix our money problems. We can fix our health problems and, and our relationships. In reality, at the root of every presenting problem that we have, at the root, there is this issue that only, only a supernatural Savior can address. So if we would understand the Old Testament rightly, and all of life rightly, we must see it in light of this promise and God's provision to keep it. He will give us rest from our enemies, our spiritual enemies. Another promise, another I-beam running through the storyline of Scripture and all of life is that God has promised a nation and homeland. God promised a nation and homeland. Now we need to go to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Dorothy knew that. and Everybody knows that intuitively. We have, this, we have this innate need to belong somewhere and to belong to someone. I have a feeling that if you, if you looked in Dan Williamson's closet, you would see a whole lot of crimson. If you look in Pastor Rick's closet, you'd see a lot of that sickly pale orange. Why is that? We just have this innate, we have this innate need to belong to someone and to some place, right? And it works its way out in a bunch of different ways. In the Old Testament, there, 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 there's this category of people called a sojourner. They're, they're people who have no one, they have no place, and they're to be pitied in the Old Testament. And so look with me now at Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's, there's a ton, with, with, with each of these passages that we're going to look at this morning, there's a ton that could be said. We're just grabbing the, the big idea. This is a promise to make one nation, one people, belonging to God and to plant them in their own homeland. A holy people for God's own possession. A people among all the peoples of the earth who are able to say, we belong to the Almighty and this promise is not at all unrelated to the previous one that we looked at. This nation would be something like an incubator for the seed of the woman. And it, 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 
this, this nation would be the family from which the one who would save us from our enemies would arise. There's an interplay between these two issues in the Old Testament. This is the struggle with the devil, death, and sin, and the need for a nation and a homeland. The struggle with enemies tends to frustrate the people's ability to enjoy being God's people and to enjoy the fruit of the land that he has given them. Even though Abraham's family eventually does grow into this huge nation, they are plagued by those enemies. And as a result, they're consistently inconsistent in following Yahweh. So for much of the Old Testament, they don't look anything like a people holy unto the Lord. For that reason, for much of the Old Testament, they are either homeless, they have no homeland at all, or they are oppressed in their own homeland, or they are exiled from their homeland. If we, if we read the Old Testament without understanding that promise rightly, it's quite easy to arrive at a works-based understanding of God's economy. If I just do the right things, I will enjoy God's blessing. If I do the wrong things, I'm going to lose them. Worship God faithfully, I'll have a people and a place. If I don't worship God faithfully, if I worship false gods, then I won't have those things. I just need to be faithful. And, and many of us have heard the Old Testament preached that way, have we not? Just do this and you'll be blessed. Do that and you'll be cursed. That is, that is a Christless Old Testament. And, and it's the way that many people understand life in general. If I, if I just do the right things, God is going to make sure that I enjoy health, wealth, and the time to enjoy it all. But if I'm a scumbag, I won't have any of that. That is a Christless view of life. It understands the things of the world to be ultimate, and it understands self as capable of procuring God's favor. But the, the Old Testament demonstrates no, we, we can't do right by God. We can't be faithful. That's the whole problem. We can't. And, and each of us have felt that in our own lives, haven't we? We've proven to ourselves we're incapable of changing on our own. A, a works-based spiritual economy is the worst news imaginable for a fallen human being. We can't thrive in that kind of world. If anyone would be the people of God in the land of God, it must be a matter of grace through faith, and that's precisely what God promised that it would be. That's the only way that it can work when the raw materials are exclusively sinful human beings. So if we would understand the Old Testament rightly and all of life rightly, we must see it in light of this promise and God's provision to keep it. He will make us a nation and give us a homeland how will he do it? That's the question that grips the reader of the Old Testament. And it is answered in Christ, as we'll see. Now, there's, there's another promise. The third great I-beam running through the storyline of Scripture and of life. And that is that God has promised an eternal throne. An eternal throne. So now we need to go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel 7. 
There was a high point in the history of Israel when the people really had freedom from their human enemies and enjoyed some semblance of security as, as a nation in their own homeland. And that was under the reign of David. That was the culmination of, of a theme. David's reign was the culmination of a theme that we see in the Old Testament. And that theme is that the people always followed Yahweh most faithfully under strong spiritual leadership. During the days of Moses, they did relatively well. Under the days of, of Joshua, they did relatively well. When Joshua died, things went south in a hurry. The enemies within their own hearts, that is sin and death, conspired with the enemy in the world, the devil, to bring great trouble upon them in the forms of idolatry, immorality, and foreign oppressors. But God would, would save them from those foreign oppressors. He would save them by raising up a judge. And as long as that judge was alive, as long as they had that strong spiritual leadership, well, then they would remain faithful. But when that judge died, they would follow other gods again. And there's, there's a refrain that runs through the book of Judges that helps us to make sense of this. That refrain is that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, God finally raises up a king in David. So their earthly enemies were, were defeated. The people of, of Yahweh, they worshipped Yahweh faithfully. Consequently, they, they were a strong nation. Their homeland was secure. And we begin to think as we read the Old Testament, man, wouldn't it be great to make this permanent? Wouldn't it be fantastic for the people to always have this kind of strong leadership to know that when David died, there would be another one like David right behind him to lead them in righteousness, to keep them faithful, to maintain their rest from their enemies? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Well, God makes a promise of something like that in 2 Samuel 7 through the mouth of Nathan, beginning in verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So, just stopping right here briefly, you can see both of those previous promises reiterated right here. Rest from enemies and a homeland. He's, he's saying once again, I'm going to give you these things. Now continuing. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow, what a great promise. Strong leadership with Yahweh's anointing forever. This is fantastic. It's just what the people need. Somebody to lead the people in faithfulness after David dies. There's always going to be somebody like David to come after him. If we read the Old Testament without understanding this promise in light of Jesus, we might think, well, all we need is just a few good men. We, we just need good human leaders. And that can lead to really moralistic preaching in the, in the Old Testament. And many of us have heard those kinds of sermons in the life of David, right? Be like David. Be like David in 1 Samuel 17. Do not be like David in 2 Samuel 11. Be the kind of person that God delights to use. We can carry that over into all of life. We evaluate the world around us and its problems in a Christless fashion. We, we tend to put our trust in earthly leaders. If we just have good leadership, we'll be fine. Everything's going to be okay. But a merely human son of David was not the fulfillment of this promise to David, nor is that the answer to our problems. If, if we see this rightly, we see that these great enemies that we've already considered, sin, death, the devil, they were too much for David and his merely earthly descendants. David was a sinful man too. In fact, David's sin was the first domino in a train that led to the rending of the nation into two kingdoms, not one. A line of wicked kings who led the people into idolatry, not faithfulness. Eventually, there was no king at all, no nation at all, no homeland at all, and they were living in a land of their enemies. So if we understand the, prob the, 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 the promise wrongly, we can begin to think, God just doesn't keep promises if we're looking for a king just like David. The point in everything that happened in the aftermath of David's rule is that we need a qualitatively different kind of king than David. We need a king who never dies, who is free from the stain of sin, and who makes us righteous. The end of the Old Testament, these promises are still unfulfilled. All of the promises we've looked at so far. Rest from enemies. That we would be a nation and have a homeland. That we would have an eternal throne. All of those promises, they're still yet unfulfilled. Has God not kept his promises? Has he changed his mind? No, he just had not kept them yet repeatedly affirmed in the prophets and psalms what we find explicitly taught in 2 Timothy 2.13 if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself far from God saying no to keeping his promises the Old Testament simply prepares for the great yes in Christ all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus and that's our our fourth point this morning. All of those eye beams are pointing toward fulfillment in Christ. God's, God fulfills all promises in Christ. He is the key that underlocks, unlocks our understanding of the Old Testament and all of life. So let's 
quickly consider all of these promises and how Jesus fulfills them. First of all, Jesus brought rest from enemies, all of those enemies. First, the, the first enemy, sin. Jesus defeated that enemy by taking it upon himself on the cross. Revelation 1.5 describes Jesus as the one who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He thereby removed our guilt so that there would be no wrath waiting for us on the last day when we die. In that way, he defeated the penalty of sin. So he did more than that, though. He didn't just defeat the penalty of sin. He defeated the power of sin by virtue of his cross and resurrection. All who repent and trust in Jesus, they are no longer slaves of sin. Rather, they have new hearts that want to follow God and obey God. Romans 6.12 reads, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. It is no longer the case that we cannot be faithful to God, but because of what Christ has done in freeing us from the power of sin, we can be faithful. We can be faithful. He defeated the power of sin. The New Testament teaches us that when Jesus returns, he will free us even from the presence of sin. It's a result of the judgment that he will bring in the New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 27 tells us nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus destroys our enemy, sin. Jesus also destroys the second enemy, the devil. Satan has always been an accuser of God's people. Think about this horrible enemy. He, he tempts us to sin. Then when we sin, he accuses us before God and accuses us in our conscience. You may remember a picture of that in Zechariah 3 when we were studying Zechariah last year or the year before. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 teaches that on the cross... Jesus disarmed the enemy of anything that he might accuse us of. See, in the act of the serpent bruising Jesus' heel, he crushed the head of the serpent. And though our defeated foe is still at work against us, when the Lord returns, he will finally and fully judge the devil forever. Revelation 20, verse 10 depicts the devil being thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented forever. Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus killed our death in himself on the cross. Of course, we we enjoy some relief from that enemy in our spiritual life that we now now have in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now we are, are alive in Christ. When Jesus returns, we will, according to 1 Corinthians 15, receive imperishable, glorified, physical bodies so that death has no hold on us in any sense whatsoever. We will have eternal life in that we will no longer be separated from God in any sense. We will live in his presence forevermore. Jesus is God's fulfillment of the promise to grant us relief from our enemies. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus also gives us a nation and homeland. He gives us a nation and homeland. Remember the promises made to Abraham. I will make you a nation and give you a homeland. If you're taking notes, write down Galatians 3.16. 
It reads, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, Paul is saying that Jesus is the singular seed of Abraham. It's in Jesus that God would make a nation, a holy people for his own possession. And, and, and Paul explains to us the implications of that later in the chapter. This is Galatians 3.26. He, he explains that, that all who are in Christ then compose this, this nation or people. In Galatians 3.26 he writes, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And in 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What that means then, brothers and sisters, is that we, the church, are the nation promised to Abraham. The church composed of all people purchased by the blood of Jesus, Jew and Gentile. Which is why Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race. You, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is that nation purchased by the blood of Christ to be a people for God's own possession. But what of the homeland? What of the homeland? Hebrews 11 verses 9 through 16 would have us expect something grander than the earthly land of Canaan. Listen to what Hebrews 11.10 says about Abraham. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, even, even Abraham was looking for something grander than Canaan. And speaking of the rest of the faithful, Abraham's descendants, a few verses later, the author of, of Hebrews makes this very explicit. They weren't satisfied with Canaan, but in verse 16, this is Hebrews eleven sixteen, 16, says, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In the next chapter, in Hebrews chapter 12, he makes it clear that he's referring to the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem of Revelation 21. And that is why Peter refers to the church in his first chapter of his first epistle as elect exiles. We do not have a homeland in this world. Our homeland is coming when Christ returns and creates the new heaven and new earth. He makes sense then of, of all of, of that in the Old Testament, of, of that promise of, of a nation and a homeland. Jesus also establishes an eternal throne. Jesus establishes an eternal throne. Peter taught this in his Pentecost Day sermon in Acts chapter 2. He taught that Jesus is currently sitting on the throne in heaven. He currently reigns. And this took place when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and was seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus reigns right now as the son of David. That's Peter's point there in Acts chapter 2. But there's coming a day when Jesus will sit on a throne that is visible to all. And we read about that in Revelation 22, which depicts the Lamb on the throne of God. And there we read of Jesus saying, I am the root and descendant of David. Jesus saying, I'm the one. I'm the one that the Father promised in 2 Samuel 7. Here's the thing about this king. 
He never dies. He is unstained by sin. And He makes us righteous. Reigns forever. See, without Christ, without Christ, all things remain shrouded in mystery. When we, when, we, when we study the Old Testament as if Christ has not come as its fulfillment, we miss its true significance. We, we, we must seek to read the Old Testament as, as Jesus himself did. He said to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So let, let us not be similarly foolish and slow of heart to believe the Scriptures. When we study the Old Testament, our burden, our privilege is to locate it within the storyline of God's promises fulfilled in Christ. And likewise, we ought to also look at all of life as Jesus does. He says that I make all things new. Jesus sees himself as the center of all of history. And we ought to, to, to look at all things that way as well. We must bring everything that we see in the scriptures into our everyday existence, understanding that the clarity that Christ brings is timeless and pertains to us. So as we study our next book in, in the Old Testament, we'll consider several questions as we go that we might keep our eyes on these promises made by God and how they're fulfilled in Jesus. Some of these questions that we'll be asking are these. How are God's promises being made or reiterated here in this passage? How is God's determination to keep His promises being revealed here? What do these things reveal about His character? And how do we see that character reflected in Christ? How does this passage or book forecast God's fulfillment of His promises in Christ? And how does this passage or book, book reflect elements of the Gospel? If we miss Jesus, we miss everything. It's true of all of life. Just as to the extent that, we, that, that our reading of the Old Testament is Christless, then our reading of the Old Testament is going to be dry and confusing. So also to the extent that our lives are Christless, our lives will be meaningless. God so graciously, so graciously gives us Jesus as the center of all things. Jesus makes sense of all of life. You know, these great existential questions that people have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Who am I? What is my purpose? What's the meaning of life? In Christ, the answers to all those questions become blessedly clear. I am a child of God, redeemed from sin and death. My purpose is to manifest His glory in this world unto the growth of His kingdom. The meaning of life is to know and love God in Christ. It doesn't matter what I face from humans or circumstances. My great enemies have been defeated in Jesus. And the blessings of this world, material and relational, though they are kindnesses of God, they pale in comparison to the glory of belonging to the eternal people of God. And though earthly rulers, they are used by the Lord to carry out His will, they are not my hope, but my hope is in Christ 
who even now rules from heaven and will reign eternally in the new heaven and new earth. Christ is the center of all things. You may, you may have heard of, of our event that is coming up this Friday, Context and Cookies. This is going to be the first time that we've ever done this. But we, we plan to do this event every time we start a new sermon series, no matter who's preaching it. And the idea is to gather together to, to announce the, the new book that we'll be studying together, to read that book in its entirety, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the scriptures indicate that the public reading of scripture is a means of grace. Secondly, reading that book in its entirety is a helpful context as we study the scriptures together. Then another element of this context in cookies, no mystery is that the cookies part, right? So we, we bring a batch of cookies, our favorite cookies to share with one another. At least that's typically how we're going to do it. But this first time, we're going to do context and, it's just going to be context and, because of the spike in COVID recently. We've had, we've had numerous families here in our own congregation who have been dealing with COVID, and because we want to love one another well and not spread anything, we're going to not do cookies in this first iteration of context and cookies. Lord willing, in the, in the future, we will we'll do the full context and cookies. But we'll still enjoy this Friday night fellowship and the reading of, of the Word together. That's this Friday, 7 p.m., right here. You do not want to miss it. It's going to be a wonderful time of fellowship of the Word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your great kindness to us. Thank you for your word, which is perfect and pure and right, upright. Thank you that in it, you show us the path of life, which is Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would help us to understand Jesus as the center of all things, the interpretive key of, of every verse of Scripture and every moment of our lives. We pray for your help, Father, as we study the Old Testament book beginning next week, that we would, we would endeavor to read it in light of the Lord Jesus Christ, being faithful certainly to its original context, but keeping in mind that, that Christ is the great context of all of human existence. We pray that you would show us wonderful things from your word. We pray further that as we leave this place today, as we deal with issues that we are able to see with our eyes and hear with our ears, feel with our hands, that we would interpret all of those things in light of the coming of Jesus Christ and how he fulfills all of your promises, Lord. Or would you make it the case that we would be a people for whom Jesus Christ it's the center of everything that we think and do, say, love. We ask this in his name.